Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is titled Prime. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. Several years ago, a pastoral search committee received a resume and cover letter from a candidate named Pastor Paul. After reviewing his credentials, the committee sent him the following response letter. Dear Reverend Paul, thank you for expressing interest in the open senior pastor position here at 10th Baptist Church of Bakersfield, California. After reviewing your resume and completing a thorough background check, we decided to pursue other candidates for the following reasons. First of all, you are too confrontational. Uh, We have heard that you publicly oppose the highly reputable Dr. Simon Peter in a congregational meeting at another church. You are also too uncompromising. Uh, It's been reported that because you refuse to compromise with other ministers on the topic of circumcision, uh, a denominational meeting, excuse me, needed to be called Uh, in order to prevent a split in the various churches. You are also uneducated. Uh, Your resume lists only three years in Arabia after your conversion, and uh, Arabia does not appear on our list of accredited seminaries. You are an unskilled speaker, and you've admitted this yourself. Uh, This is unfortunate because our previous pastors have blessed our church with their polished delivery and excellent expository skills. You are, or you have been, incarcerated. Multiple times, in fact. This is unfortunate because, uh, in addition to being incarcerated multiple times, you've had several run-ins with civil authorities in numerous communities. And we would not want to hurt the reputation of our church by having a felon on staff. You are also too unreasonable. Uh, Your background check revealed that you have previously worked in ministry with men such as Diotrephes and Demas and Hymenaeus and Alexander. When we contacted these these men on our own initiative, because we, we like to speak to more than just the references that the candidate gives us, well... They all claimed that you were so difficult and demanding to work with that none of these men are in full-time ministry anymore. We hope that this constructive feedback will help you grow as a leader, and we certainly wish you the best in all your future endeavors. Sincerely in Christ, the search committee of 10th Baptist Church of Bakersfield. Credibility is a non-negotiable for doing gospel ministry. Uh, Knowing this, the adversary works hard to discredit reliable ministers of the gospel, or he tries to redefine what is credible and what it should look like. The false teachers that were infiltrating the church in Colossae were luring weak-minded believers away from the church by attacking the Apostle Paul's credibility. 
They did so by asking cunning questions like, why would you want to believe a message that got Paul arrested? Or, or why would you want to follow the man who preached this message while he's still incarcerated? Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 to 29 contains the Apostle Paul's response to these attacks being waged on his credibility. And so I want to invite you to open up your copy of God's Word with me to uh, Colossians chapter 1. We're continuing our series called Prime today. And I want to encourage you to pull out the sermon notes in your worship folder and follow along with me as we work our way through Colossians 1, verses 24 to 29. Also, you'll notice on your, your sermon note handout, there is a key verse for the series. It's Colossians 1.18. If you haven't done so already, I want to encourage you to underline it in your uh, Bible or highlight it. But let's read it out loud together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. Uh, you might remember to be preeminent means... To be above or before all others, superior to others, surpassing others. Now the Apostle Paul, directly and indirectly, will say throughout this letter that Jesus Christ is supreme. And because he is supreme, he is sufficient. And because he is sufficient, he should be superior in our lives. He should be first. He should be number one. He should be prime. Now, you also might remember that um, a little bit of background, just let me review and bring some of you up to speed, maybe, that haven't been here in a couple of weeks, that the book of Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in the city of Colossae. It was a city in Asia Minor. Paul was imprisoned in Rome for preaching the gospel. Now, this was the first of two imprisonments that he would endure. This first one takes place between 60 and 62 AD, and it's actually more like house arrest. He, uh, we're told from Acts 28 that uh, this, that's where the description is of Paul's house arrest, first imprisonment. Uh, he rented his own house, had an armed Roman guard with him 24 hours a day, he had Jewish leaders from Rome come to the rented rental house to visit him, and he preached to them, and he also was able to receive visitors. Uh, one of the visitors was a man named Epaphras, who planted the church in Colossae, and Epaphras had made the journey uh, west to Rome to see Paul because he needed help evicting false teachers that had moved into the church. Needless to say... Paul's multiple incarcerations, his confrontational tone, uncompromising leadership, and unattractive physical appearance would have labeled him as a failure in today's megachurch celebrity pastor culture. However, Paul did not see himself as a failure. He saw himself as a success. And so thus our big idea for today is this, and here's why Paul saw himself as a success Suffering for the gospel is one sign of successful ministry. Suffering for the gospel is one sign of successful ministry. 
Paul shares some insights about the true about true gospel ministry in this passage that many 21st century first world believers will find shocking and sobering. Paul's words in these verses are desperately needed in a season when well, the gospel is being watered down to make it more palatable when Judeo-Christian values are no longer mainstream and success in ministry is defined by the size of a church's budget. And so with that, if you would look at your Bibles with me at Colossians 1, verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Here's the first truth that Paul tells us here on your outline, and that is that suffering for the gospel is a great privilege. Suffering for the gospel is a great privilege. This is certainly counterintuitive, isn't it? In a culture in which we live, in which comfort is an idol, in which we have been afforded so many pleasures here in America in the 21st century, but Paul says now, I rejoice in my sufferings. As I alluded to earlier, false teachers in Colossae were trying to use Paul's imprisonment to discredit him or to shame him. But Paul turned their strategy back against them by mentioning that the Gentile believers in Colossae were one of the reasons he was under house arrest. Notice it says, for your sake. He's referring to Acts chapter 22 when he was arrested on false charges and testified before a Jewish tribunal. The apostle had a captive audience as he shared his conversion testimony but then, in Acts chapter 22, verse 22, he mentioned that the Lord had called him to also take the gospel out to the Gentile world. This enraged the Jewish tribunal and caused them to send Paul off to Rome for execution. My point is this. Paul's willingness to take the gospel outside of Jerusalem to the Gentile world is what made it possible for the Colossians to even have a church. That's why he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. That's, this is, it's why I'm here. Because of you, Colossians. Next he says, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Now this is a sticky, tricky verse here. And it's arguably uh, the most controversial verse in the entire letter. Uh, the NIV renders this what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. If you have the NIV translation, um, the NLT, the New Living Translation, renders this as, I am participating in the sufferings of Christ. Now, at first glance, it might appear as though Paul is saying, Christ's sufferings on the cross were not sufficient or not quite enough. But that's not what it means. And that's because it can't be true because several other places in the New Testament tell us that Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient. 
And so, what does it mean? Well, I think what Paul is saying here is that when we suffer for those we're trying to win to Christ, we show them how Christ suffered to save them. We extend or we replay Christ's sufferings because when the body suffers, he suffers with it. So, uh, I feel compelled now on this topic here of persecution and suffering here in this passage to clarify what persecution for the gospel is. Because I think there are some American evangelicals that think they have suffered for the gospel when in fact they, they haven't. And so persecution is not being made fun of in middle school or high school because of your appearance. You see, that happens to unbelieving kids too, not just Christian ones. Persecution is not being denied something you want or the Lord failing to do what you had hoped he would do. Say, answering a certain prayer. Persecution is it's not getting passed over for a promotion because the other guy was more qualified than you. It's not um, having a standard of living that's less than what you want. That's not, that's not suffering or persecution either. And teenagers, it's not losing a Wi-Fi connection and having a, a pause, a temporary pause in your internet access. I know it may feel like it, but it's not. Um, persecution is not being inconvenienced, like giving up your seat at church for a visitor or parking further out so spaces closest to our building can be available for guests, or maybe serving in the children's ministry on a weekend when you have family visiting from out of town. Not persecution. Sorry. It's not being disciplined by the church because you refuse to repent of sin the elders lovingly brought to your attention with scriptural support. I've seen that one, unfortunately. We're uh, not in this church, but at another church uh, uh, where the elders and I had to, we spent months working with someone to try and get them restored and reconciled with the Lord. And they blew out of the church and then went and ran their mouth throughout the community about how poorly they were treated, only telling their side of the story, not mentioning the 15 meetings over the course of 10 months in letters and emails and truckloads of scripture and appealing and appealing and appealing to them to repent and get right with the Lord. Persecution also is not natural evil from the fall, such as natural disasters like tragic accidents or health problems. It's tragic as, say, getting cancer is. It's not persecution, it's, it's a result of the fall. And so what is persecution? What is suffering for the gospel? Here's a definition I've been working on for a while. Uh, I think it is, it is the direct opposition to your gospel witness that results in financial loss, physical harm, or relational rejection. Persecution is direct opposition to your gospel witness that results in financial loss, physical harm, or relational rejection. 
Thus, some examples of persecution that I've seen in my lifetime uh, would be, for example, being ridiculed at school or work because of your faith in Christ and what you believe. Or, or uh, maybe being fired or passed over for a promotion because you weren't willing to sin. You weren't willing to lie to customers or to spin the numbers a little bit or to cover up for a co-worker's mistake. Uh, persecution is it's being excluded from your family because of your faith in Christ. I've sadly seen that. I've baptized people before that grew up in another denomination or maybe another religion, and uh, the baptism or church member said, I'm not going to be spending Christmases with my family anymore after this. They've made it clear that I'm on the outs now. Or another one that comes to mind that certainly has made headlines more recently, being forced to accept or participate in or support sin that violates your biblical convictions. Those would be some examples of persecution that I've seen today. I'm beginning to wonder, as I study this passage, I'm beginning to think that a better gauge of someone's commitment to Christ is asking them, what did it cost you to follow him? Instead of asking, what did you gain by coming to know him? Has it cost you anything? Because just about everybody in the scriptures that came to know Christ as their Savior had to give up something to follow him. So, Paul says it's a privilege. Why is it a privilege? Here's A, B, and C in your outline. First, uh, because we grow closer to Jesus when we suffer for the gospel. Uh, in Philippians 3.10, he talks about this a famous one of Paul's famous passages, it's a well-known verse. He says, he wanted to know Christ and the power of his resurrection that he would be able to share in Christ's sufferings. Why on earth would Paul want to do that? Well, I think, I think why he wrote that to the Philippians is that he was trying to say he wanted to grow closer to Christ by experiencing what Jesus experienced and feeling what Jesus felt. And I think Paul realized that if he did so, he would have a deeper appreciation for what Christ did for him. Here's another reason, letter B. Why is it a privilege to suffer for the gospel? Because we become worthy of his name. In Acts chapter 5, we're told that Peter and the apostles were arrested for preaching the gospel. And they were brought before the council of Pharisees. They end up, while being in prison, waiting trial, they lead their prison guard to faith in Christ. They're told to stop preaching the gospel, of which they don't. They're beaten and then released. Now, I have to admit, and I've read Acts 5 several times over the years, if I was in that scenario, the male ego in me would uh, shake the dust off my feet, 
say, I'm going to go get some friends so we can even up teams. I'll be back tomorrow so we can settle this on a playing field. You know what I mean? But not the apostles. They didn't do that. It says in Acts 5 verse 41, they left rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. You see, suffering, especially in the book of Acts, it not only emboldened the early believers, it also drew unbelievers to faith in Christ because it caused unbelievers to ask the question, what is it that makes you willing to give up everything for this Jesus? What, what is it that makes you willing to die for this guy? So, it's a privilege because we grow closer to Jesus, we, we become worthy of his name, and then here's letter C, because we earn eternal rewards. Jesus said in Matthew 5, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, verses 10 through 12, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, says Jesus, for your reward is great in heaven. Whoa! You've heard me say this before when I've talked about eternal rewards. We can tell what matters to Jesus by, by looking at what he's willing to incentivize. And so when Jesus says, I will reward you for this, it's, it's, it's him saying, I value this. I take note of this. Interestingly, both James chapter 1 and Revelation chapter 2 state that believers who have suffered for their faith will be awarded the crown of life. It's a special commendation for those who were bold with their faith and experienced affliction for it. Not rude about their faith. They, they weren't abrasive. You remember last week I quoted 1 Peter 3.15 where Peter says to be, we, we all should, if you know Christ, you should be prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. But here's, here's some encouragement and some hope for all of us. Let me, let me just drive this home in case it's not clear. Because Jesus says he will reward in eternity those that have suffered for his name, it means that if you have suffered financial loss, physical harm, or relational rejection because of your faith in Christ, Jesus is saying it was worth it. I will make it worth your while. Not only because the Lord promises to redeem our suffering for good, but also because he promises to reward our suffering. 
Like an accountant during tax season, the Lord is documenting every loss, every wound, every rejection, so that we get a big return in eternity. It even says in the Psalms that he captures our tears in a bottle. So he knows, and he's keeping count. So it's a privilege Because we grow closer to Jesus, because we become worthy of his name, we earn eternal rewards. This is why I think Bishop J.C. Ryle, oh, I love J.C. Ryle. Oh, he's one of my favorites. He once insightfully and accurately summed up true Christianity like this. He said, it is as true of Christians as it is of Christ that there can be no life Without death, there can be no sweet without bitter, and there can be no crown without a cross. And let me just say, J.C. Ryle suffered for the gospel, so he knows what he was talking about. So, application, what do we do with this? I think we need to consider persecution a privilege like Paul. Just as a soldier considers it an honor to die for his country, we should not hesitate to speak for Christ with gentleness and respect. And if he asks us to, to give our lives for the sake of the gospel. Not only will those who suffer get a hero's welcome when they get home in heaven, they will also have their sacrifice remembered forever. Because suffering for the gospel is one sign of successful ministry. Next, let's look at uh, verses 25 to 27. Paul says, Of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The, The mystery hidden for all ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Here's number two in your outline. Suffering for the gospel is a great responsibility. So in addition to it being a great privilege, it's also a great responsibility. Paul says here he became a minister according to the stewardship from God, He's giving one of many reasons he was willing to suffer for the gospel and willing to suffer for the Gentiles in Colossae. He felt a sense of duty to make the word of God fully known because of all that the Lord had done for him. Now, it gets a little wordy in here with some sort of mystical mystery language. And uh, I understand that because when I first read it, I had to reread it a few times going, what, what is he saying? What does this mean? What? And, and, and so there's this phrase in verse 26 in the ESV. It says, the mystery hidden for ages. In our culture, I think one of the reasons I first had difficulty understanding this is because in our culture, a mystery is something like a, it's a story that's hard to understand. It's eerie, maybe frightening or um, mystical in some way. But that's, that's not... 
Paul is talking about the gospel, but that's not what he means about the gospel. What he's basically saying is this, and I'll just paraphrase for the sake of time. Paul, I think, is saying when he references the mystery of the gospel, he's saying, hey, look, for centuries we heard about this Messiah that would come and would save God's people of Israel, the Hebrews, and bring the Gentiles in and unite Hebrew and Gentile in one body called the church. Well, now this mystery has been revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what I think he's saying. Now we know what the mystery is. It's no longer hidden. We're no longer wondering, when's this Messiah going to come? What's he going to look like? What's he going to do? He came. He was born. He died. He rose again. His name is Jesus Christ. Now in verse 27, Paul goes on to reveal how God solved this centuries-old mystery. How is the Lord going to save the people of Israel? And how is he going to get the Gentiles into this family, uniting these two different peoples? Well, Christ in you, the hope of glory, is what he says. So what do we do with this? How do we apply this? How do we walk in the truth with verses 25 to 27? I think we need to not waste the opportunity of persecution. If the Lord sovereignly places you somewhere where you might suffer for your faith, I think Paul is saying to us here, don't waste it. Paul, I think, is saying we should feel the same sense of duty that he felt to stand for Christ. And again, I'm, I'm thinking of our armed services. You, you remember how after 9-11, you know, there was a spike in enlistment from young men and women who wanted to go off to the other side of the world to help fight the war on terror. I was thinking about that last night, and I was thinking, how much more should we be willing to sacrifice for Christ in light of all that he's done for us? If unbelievers can get fired up about their country so much that they're willing to risk their lives on the other side of the world, how much more should we be willing to do it for Jesus? So don't waste the opportunity of persecution. Finally, look at verses 28 and 29. Paul says, thus, him we proclaim, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom, that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. The third point in your outline, the last one, suffering for the gospel is a great burden. Paul is, I love his honesty. It's a great burden. In verse 29, he says, for this I, I toil. He uses an interesting word here in the original text that means to grow weary or exhausted. As one would from doing manual labor. It's an admission by Paul that life-changing, earth-shaking, cage-rattling ministry can be physically tiring. But he also says he doesn't do it in his own strength. Notice in verse 29, he says, struggling 
with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. So notice how Paul, he reveals the source of his strength to be the Lord. Paul knew that he could not do what God had called him to do in his own strength, and neither can we. So, application, what do we do? How do we walk in truth and be doers of the word? I think we need to expect selling out for Jesus to be difficult. Paul admits, this is hard. But Jesus is helping me with his supernatural power to do it. Expect selling out for Jesus to be difficult. But it's worth it. When I was in college, our football team used to run a drill in practice that would simulate blocking a punt. This drill was quite simple. The special teams coach would lay out a a large pad that looks like a mattress. It's kind of about five feet wide, eight feet long, and he would lay the pad out, and then he would hold a football over the pad, similar to what you see in the picture there, like he was a punter getting ready to kick the ball. And so when the coach would say, he would have the, the rushers line up where they would normally line up uh, a few feet off the ball, and uh, he would say, when he would say hut, they were to as quickly as possible try to get to the ball and to stretch out their body, and, and he would say, sell out, man, come on, sell out, sell out. They were to dive over the mat to try and reach the ball and knock the ball out of his hand. The purpose of the bill, uh, drill excuse me, was to, to help players overcome the fear of getting hurt because it was sort of counterintuitive to dive for a ball like that. But the coach wanted to teach them how to make a great play. In other words, the smaller risk of personal injury was worth the larger reward of blocking a punt. Which, many of you know that watch football, a blocked punt is a game changer. It shifts the momentum and just takes the air out of the team that's kicking the ball. Well, in a similar sense, I was thinking about this last night. I think God's word and I think Paul models, God's word calls us to this and Paul models selling out. Meaning to just lay out everything you've got, don't fear anything, just sell out for Jesus, don't worry about getting hurt, trust him completely, knowing that it's worth it. Paul is telling us the temporary pain of persecution is worth the eternal reward of spreading the gospel because suffering is a game changer in the battle for souls. Now, one example of a man who sold out for Jesus is William Tyndale. And if you put your Bible away, I want to ask you to keep your Bible out because I'm going to tell you a story about your English Bible. If you're holding an English Bible in your hand, or you have one on your smartphone, or you have one at home that you don't read, you need to know who William Tyndale is. He was born shortly after the invention of the first commercial printing press. 
Tyndale felt the Lord calling him to translate the Greek New Testament into English for the first time. This is hugely significant because for the previous 1,000 years, please turn to the neighbor next to you and say 1,000 years. You need to get 1,000 years, okay? 1,000 years. The only translation of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament was the Latin Vulgate. This not only made the Bible inaccessible to most people, but it also made it difficult to understand even after taking several years of Latin. And to make matters worse, Tyndale's home church, he was English, uh, the Church of England had banned the unauthorized translation of the Bible into English in 1408, about 100 years before he was born. Can you imagine a world in which the only people who could read the Bible or had a Bible were the priests at church? And, and they had no Latin. I can't. And neither could William Tyndale. After encountering, encountering so much biblical illiteracy in his country, Tyndale famously said this, If God spares my life for many years, I will make it possible for a boy that drives a plow to know more of the scriptures than I do. He's famous for that quote. Tyndale tried to seek permission from the bishops in the Church of England to create an English translation of the Bible, but his requests were denied. And so, compelled by the Spirit of God, he left England in 1524, fled to Germany in order to work on a translation, and lived the rest of his life as a fugitive. Constantly being tracked and hunted by King Henry VIII's agents. In 1531, King Henry sent a messenger to Tyndale offering him a job as his resident writer and scholar. Tyndale responded respectfully, sending a message back, saying that he would only accept the position if the king would allow him to print an English Bible. Of course, the king said no, and so Tyndale said, well then, no thank you. Shortly after this, Tyndale's best friend was captured by the king's bishops and burned at the stake. That same year, the man who helped smuggle Tyndale's Bibles into England, he, he smuggled 6,000 copies from uh, Germany, where he had them printed, he used merchant ships that were carrying cloth into England. He, he, he had the Bibles stuffed in cloth bales. And then they were smuggled into England and sold. He got 6,000 copies sent. Well, King Henry's spies tracked down the man coordinating the ships, arrested him, had him burned at the stake. For the next four years, the king's henchmen furiously searched for this underground Bible translator named William Tyndale. And he repeatedly escaped their grasp. 
That is until 1535, excuse me. It was in 1535 that a fellow Englishman named Henry Phillips earned Tyndale's trust over several months only to betray him by turning him over to the king's spies. Tyndale was thrown in prison for 18 months and then executed in October of 1536 at the age of 42. The charges brought against him were simple. He was a supporter of Martin Luther's Protestant Reformation, and so Tyndale believed that salvation was available by grace through faith to all who repented of their sins and trusted Christ. And the other charge was trying to make the Bible available to the common man in English. Before being strangled and then burned at the stake, he uttered his final prayer to the Lord. Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. And then he died. That prayer was answered three years later when King Henry VIII required every parish church in England to make a copy of the English Bible available to its parishioners. So the next time you read your Bible, hopefully tomorrow morning in your morning devotions, or perhaps the next time you're tempted not to read it, I want to encourage you to ask yourself, how would William Tyndale feel? Because he paid a great price to make it possible for us to have this. And I think William Tyndale would agree with Paul that suffering for the gospel is one sign of successful ministry. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, a passage like this that describes suffering for the gospel as a good thing worth celebrating and rejoicing in is so counterintuitive to the culture that we have grown up in. Would you please, by your spirit and by your grace, help us to change our thinking. Father, if there is anyone here that's been playing it safe in their faith because they don't want to lose anything, would you lovingly, gently convict and encourage them to be graciously bold? Father, if there's anyone here that has lost a job, income, family, friends, because of their faith in Christ. Would you redeem that for good? And Lord, would you help them to see how you want to use that in their life? Father, we recognize that things are changing in our country to where living for Christ and having a bold Christian witness is no longer safe it's starting to get dangerous. And we've been spoiled as a country, Lord. Having enjoyed 
over 200 years of Judeo-Christian values. But Lord, we've had it better than most countries in the world have when it comes to witnessing. So please, would you help us in the remaining years that we have left to make a mark for Jesus, to do it with gentleness and respect, to do it with the candor that Paul talked about, Finally, Lord, would you use our church? Though we are small, we know you delight to use small things to do big things for you because then you get all the glory. Would you please use our church to bring many to faith in Jesus Christ, to transform this community, to shake cages, rattle hearts, true gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Carrie Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.